Let me ask you a question. What makes a good podcast? Is it the audio quality? The stories? Is it the host's personality? There's a lot that goes into making a great show. And if you're a Feed the Cue listener, we know you enjoy podcasts, but have you thought about making your own? So Feed the Cue is a show that we make with Ventures FM. They're a podcast production company for independent and branded podcasts, and we've had such an amazing experience with them. Adela and I have absolutely loved working with Ventures FM. They make the process so seamless for us, and all we have to do is record, and like magic, they turn it into this amazing show that you're listening to right now. They turned our tiny little dream of this show into a beautiful reality. So check them out on their website at ventures.fm. And now let's get into today's episode. Hi, I'm Adela Mizrachi, founder of Podcast Brunch Club, which is like book club, but for podcasts. And I'm Lauren Vassell, founder of Tink Media, a podcast marketing company, and I'm the editor of Podcast the Newsletter and Podcast Marketing Magic. And you're listening to Feed the Q, where at random times, we will feed your Q with an episode of a dazzling show that we love, but don't think enough people are listening to. Okay, Adela, you ready? Let's get into it. Hi, Lauren here. Now, I would follow Bridget Todd to the end of the world and back, and I do. I'm obsessed with her shows, There Are No Girls on the Internet, The Internet Hate Machine, I'm obsessed with Bridget in general, everything she does. She is one of those people who I want in charge of everything, yet I also want her to spend all of her time vacationing on a beach in Mexico because she deserves a break. (laughs) But she never rests and now is the host of Beef, which tells stories behind notable rivalries in music, wrestling, movies, history, and more. Listeners find out how these rivals tried to crush their competition only to find that their enemies became a driving force behind their success. This episode features Dan Savage of Savage Lovecast, and he is there to kind of give us the full history, help Bridget along, and he actually talks about how Ann Landers essentially taught him how to write, I sucked my partner off in lieu of I performed oral sex on my partner. Just trust me, it'll make sense when you hear it. He's the perfect guest for this episode. I hope you enjoy. What's the strangest wedding you've ever been to? I bet this one can top it. Close your eyes and try to picture Sioux City, Iowa in 1939. It's Sunday, July 2nd, and you've been invited, along with 750 other friends and family, to the double ceremony of the Friedman sisters, Esther Pauline and Pauline Esther. As if their names alone aren't confusing enough, the fact that the girls are twins makes it even harder to know which one's which. Looking around the room, you count three rabbis and 22 bridal party members. This is a huge audience, but that's what these women would grow to expect in the years to come. The person next to you leans over and quietly whispers to you, you know they both dropped out of Morningside College to become Mrs. Jules W. Letterer and Mrs. Morton Phillips, right? They were in their junior year. Finally, the bridal processional plays, and two petite young women with their jet black hair in the same exact hairdo, wearing the same exact dress and veil, enter and start walking down the aisle. But the path to the altar was not the only thing that these twins would share over the course of their lives. Far from it. In fact, talents, 
politics, dates, fashion sense. There wasn't a thing on this earth that one sister could call her own, so much so that their parents often referred to them as two halves of the same egg. You see, Esther and Pauline went by many names. Yet, most of the world knows them as Anne Landers and Abigail Van Buren, a.k.a. Dear Abby, two of the most successful and widely circulated newspaper columnists in history. Reaching millions across the globe, these two beloved cultural commentators would help shape society's conversation around relationships, sex, etiquette, and many other topics for decades. However, their rise to success would also be undermarked by a major schism, one that would become publicly acerbic and privately lead to roughly a decade of silence between two women who were preternaturally connected beyond simple biology. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. From the day they were born in 1918, the Friedman sisters were inseparable. Although technically Esther, the elder of the two, did have about 17 minutes to herself before Pauline followed soon after. Maybe it was this brief window of solitude that first sparked the desire for an independent identity in Esther. But for the first several years of their lives, there was no one without the other. Having fled to Sioux City from Vladivostok, Russia, their father Abe made ends meet by selling chickens from the back of a wagon, and eventually owning several movie theaters that featured vaudeville performers. This may be where they got their first taste for an audience, as the girls learned violin and would sing Andrew's sister songs together in Yiddish. They also learned about what grown-ups get up to behind closed doors from talking to the chorus girls in one of the burlesque acts. But more so than the limelight, the girls' focus always seemed to be on helping other people. One story has them playing music outside the local prison for inmates to enjoy. And the congenial nature of their upbringing was greatly informative for how they viewed the world. In 1996, Esther told the Chicago Tribune, I think that middle American values have helped me tremendously. The principles, the morality. Eventually, the twins would enroll at Morningside. Esther, or Epi as she was known, would later joke that she majored in boys. But in reality, she and her sister Popo both studied journalism and psychology. And together, they co-wrote a gossip column for their school's newspaper called The Campus Rat. The invisible sororal bond between them likely seemed at its strongest at this point. After all, they were often seen in matching raccoon coats and sometimes showed up to dances and parties with a single fella sandwiched in between them. But as all siblings know, hidden inside even the deepest familial love, there's at least the slightest current of resentment. Maybe it comes from being forced to compete for your parents' attention, or the desire for the world to value you on your own. The Friedman sisters were no strangers to this feeling, however slight it may be. Eppie's daughter Margot once told the New York Times that her mother wanted to forge her own identity, and Popo always wanted to forge one identity. Unafraid to throw shade herself, Popo also acknowledged their own latent competitiveness, once telling Life magazine that her sister wanted to be the first violin in the school orchestra, but I was. She swore she'd marry a millionaire, but I did. Still waters run deep, though, and for years, the love between Epi and Popo was unwavering as they lived parallel lives. After leaving Morningside for holy matrimony, their husbands went off to serve in World War II together and became best friends themselves. When they returned from war, Popo's husband Morton Phillips 
heir to a liquor business fortune, hired Eppie's husband, Jules Letterer, and the two couples moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Once there, the sisters' desire to care for their community showed through. They threw incredible parties, occasionally led the town parade, and dove headlong into civic work. Popo trained hospital volunteers, and Abby got so involved in local politics that she was elected to the head of the Eau Claire County Democratic Party. But what also showed through, ever so slightly like slivers of light under a darkened door, was the growing fracture between the sisters, slowly wedging them further and further apart. Only other twins can really know what it's like to wake up every morning and know that you have to split whatever love or glory the world has to offer with someone who looks, sounds, and maybe even acts a little bit too much like you. And perhaps, somewhat unselfishly, Epi decided that she had shared enough. So first, she got a nose job. Then, in 1954, she, Jules, and their teenage daughter Margot moved to Chicago. At that time, Ann Landers was already thriving, at least in a literary sense. Since 1943, Landers had been the nom de plume of registered nurse Ruth Crowley. Advice columns were fairly common in newspapers throughout the United States, offering measured counsel to anonymous authors of all sorts of questions. David Gudalunas is the Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Tampa and the author of Confidential to America, Newspaper Advice Columns and Sexual Education. He says that advice columns have a long history in print media. Newspaper advice columns have been around for a long time, as long as newspapers have been around. There's been, a, you know, the impulse to ask questions uh, and to seek out answers has been as long as we've had newspapers, really. People would write in to get practical advice on things about farming or about the weather, things like that. It's not until uh, really after the Second World War that we get the sort of advice columns that we think of today. That is female in perspective, targeted towards female readers and talking about issues having to do with domestic life uh, more so than public life. Much of that advice related to relationships, and many of the askers and audience were teenagers, a term that had only recently been coined to describe 13 to 19-year-olds when Ruth Crowley got her start. In Confidential to America, Gouda Lunas points out Crowley's version of Landers was both popular and controversial. Also, her witty, no-nonsense style would be the basis for the pithy tone that Epi would later become so famous for adopting. For example, Crowley's only response to a man who wrote in 1953 to complain that his live-in girlfriend was always claiming she was too tired to make out with him was, you are a fool, period. Remember, this is before television, this is before radio. And these are people who are writing in a way, you know, you would speak to your neighbors, you would speak to your friends, you would talk to your girlfriends, things like that. And that's the tone they're taking in the newspaper. Now, the rest of the newspaper has a very formal, you know, journalistic, stiff, objective, all those sort of things, right? The newspaper advice columns, on the other hand, were probably the one place in early newspapers that were really conversational in nature. They were approachable. They were personal. They felt like somebody uh, was, you know, writing a letter to you as opposed to what was in the rest of the newspaper, which is the hard, serious news kind of stuff. When Epi arrived in the Windy City at age 36, she seemed fully committed to relaxing into upper-middle-class domestic bliss. She even went as far as having Jules's wife stitched into the inside of her fur coats. But the restless productivity that was the unseen unifying quality between her and her sister ultimately prevailed. As Popo noted of her own career in a 1986 interview with the Los Angeles Times, after I was married, I thought, there has to be something more to life than Mahjong. However, 
the Chicago Democratic political machine rebuffed Epi's participation, supposedly telling her they didn't need any more quote-unquote hellraisers. As luck would have it, though, Ruth Crowley died a week after Epi learned of the Ask Ann Landers advice column in the New York Chicago Sun-Times, which she thought was good, but not great. Epi imagined herself doing a better job, so she phoned a friend at the newspaper and entered a competition with 28 other women to take Crowley's place. Seeking to blow her competitors out of the water, she reached back into her political Rolodex to add expert analysis to her responses to the stack of sample letters that she was given. For legal advice on a neighborly dispute over a walnut tree, Epi reached out to her old friend, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, for a quote. To counsel a Roman Catholic who wanted to marry a Protestant, she called up the priest in charge at University of Notre Dame. When Epi showed the editor her responses, he was aghast that she would be so brazenly willing to get them all sued. He told me, you can't just make up these quotes. And I said, I didn't. And he said, okay then, you're hired, Epi once recalled. The new Ann Landers stood out in three ways. First of all, she was funnier and less formal. In her answers, she called the people writing into her things like buster and bub, and she was chock full of clever turns of phrase for any situation. She told a father who seemed to be seeking her approval to keep his 12-year-old daughter in diapers that he had a quote-unquote geranium in his cranium. And when one woman wrote in under the pseudonym Cheated and Angry in Missouri to bemoan the fact that her husband refused to make love to her, the response read, Mid-50s is too young to settle for ashes if there's still fire in the furnace. Sex was actually a big part of Ann Landers 2.0. Epi wanted to reach beyond a high school audience and create a space for both older and younger generations to communicate their struggles and desires. So she touched on topics that were relevant to both parents and their kids. But also, she chose topics that would be difficult for them to discuss with one another. And she did it in a way that was open-minded, as well as steeped in wizened practicality, as only a person who decides at age 15 that they'll never drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes as long as they live can do. Finally, the most remarkable thing about the new and improved Ann Landers was her genuine empathy and sincere concern for her readers, despite one editor telling her that she needed to separate herself from the people writing in. Epi Letterer would eventually come to repeat the mantra, these people depend on me and it only costs 32 cents to get my attention. And when asked what the secret to her broad appeal was, she once said, just getting people to write problems down is part way to solving them. They can think about the problem, then they cope with it in a more objective way. This version of Landers was so influential that Epi's impact on the industry still resonates today. So I talked to Dan Savage, author of the award-winning and nationally syndicated advice column, Savage Love, about why she fascinated him so much that he would eventually follow in her footsteps. Well, I, I grew up reading her and... I loved her voice. I loved that she could make a mistake. She used to have, she had this catchphrase like 20 lashes with a wet noodle that when she'd made a mistake and like admitted that her readers were right and she was wrong, she would sentence herself to 20 lashes with a wet noodle. And I just found her relatable. And she reminded me of my mother, uh, who was also kind of like the Dr. Phil for the neighborhood when I was growing up. Ann Landers got in your head. You could hear her voice. She seemed like a person that you were having a conversation with, which is another thing I took from her when I started Savage Love, is I literally said, I want this to sound like a conversation I'm having with my friends about our sex lives after a drink in a bar. 
which meant, and it was radical for Savage Love and for being in print 30 years ago before the internet existed. I let people use the language that they actually used when they talked about their sex lives and talked about sex in print, as opposed to the kind of Sanskrit, you know, archaic uh, Latin that people had to use talking about their sex lives when they talked about them in print before. You know, I didn't make people say, I performed oral sex on my partner. People could say, I suck my partner off. As weird as that might be for, you know, the angel of Ann Landers up in heaven to hear me say, me letting people be explicit and conversational and colloquial like that was inspired by her column. Success came perhaps a bit more quickly than Epi had expected, though. Soon after, starting in 1955, she was overwhelmed with a deluge of incoming mail from eager advice seekers. Before long, her column would be syndicated in 30 newspapers. So she turned to the only person that she knew had the chops to keep up, her sister. Harking back to their old days as co-authors of The Campus Rat, Epi started farming out some of her work to Popo. And it was here that the undercurrent of petty one-upmanship really began to rise to the surface. Even nearly 30 years later, Popo claimed in an interview with Ladies Home Journal that she was actually the one who provided the sharp answers. I'd say, you're writing too long. She still does. And this is the way I'd say it, remarked Popo. My stuff was published, and it looked awfully good in print. I guess she felt threatened because she said, I'm not sending any more letters. My editors don't want me to. And she yanked them away. Whether Epi did actually feel insecure or her editor was uncomfortable with the outsourcing arrangement isn't really clear. But after about three months, Popo was cut loose. Yet this was hardly enough to convince her she couldn't do everything Epi was doing, only better. First violin in the school orchestra would never be enough for Popo, nor would being the one married to a millionaire. So shortly after she and her husband moved to the Bay Area, Popo called up the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle, insisting that she could write circles around the advice columnist the paper had on staff at the time. In an attempt to politely rid himself of this interloping housewife, the editor had her come in and write sample responses to questions from back issues. And within less than 24 hours of reading what she had written, the editor offered Popo a job. For her pseudonym, she took the name Abigail from the Book of Samuel's Prophetess in the Old Testament and the surname Van Buren from President Martin Van Buren, which she said had a quote-unquote aristocratic old family ring to it. Like Ann Landers, Abigail Van Buren was also witty and insightful. But the answers in the Dear Abby column cut ever so much closer to the quick. When a woman named Bertie wrote in, are birth control pills deductible? Abby's curt response was, Dear Bertie, only if they didn't work. When a young woman asked what she thought her boyfriend would like for his birthday, Abby wrote, Never mind what he'd like. Give him a tie. Though, just like her sister Epi, Popo displayed a deeply sincere level of empathy for her audience. This combination of smart humor and sensitivity proved to be a secret sauce that was undeniable in its appeal once again, as Dear Abby eventually would become the most widely syndicated column in America. They were at the glory days of newspapers in some ways. They were, you know, uh, the, the, the rivalry was able to exist because at the time, most big cities, even most medium-sized cities, small cities, would have two newspapers, uh, competing newspapers, if not more, uh, or there'd be an AM edition or a PM edition or, or these sorts of things. 
And so they came, they came uh, uh, of age, they came up in popularity at a time when a lot of people were reading a lot of newspapers. By the time that their columns start to wind down, you know, newspapers start to lose after television news and all that sort of stuff. And so they, they happen to be there at the right time when newspapers were such a central part of you know, the, the American experience. What came next was either absurdly predictable or heartbreakingly unavoidable, depending on how you look at it. The two women cared about each other so intensely that, according to Popo's daughter, Jean, their level of communication was, quote-unquote, built in along with their circulatory system. But perhaps they had committed themselves so thoroughly to solving other people's problems that they couldn't come to terms with the one problem that was so close to home. As their respective success grew over the next few years, rumors of the sisters' latent rivalry became unavoidable. Then, in April 1958, it all came to a head in the form of a Life magazine article titled Twin Lovelorn Advisors Torn Asunder by Success. The author of the piece seemed hell-bent on pitting the twins against each other. But the women also had plenty of ammunition to lob at one another from the safety of separate interviews. The story listed the obvious points of comparison, noting that Ann Landers reported receiving 7,000 letters a week, while Dear Abby received a reported 2,000 letters a week. It also noted that Epi and Popo often accused one another of imitating each other's style. The story mentioned their respective syndication numbers, included quibbling from their publishers, and quoted accusations that Ann's team were undercutting Abby's advice column in price. It even highlighted the fact that in many cities, when one local paper started running one of the sisters' columns, that paper's rival would have to start running the other sisters' column if it wanted to maintain its readership. Beneath the guise of healthy competition, though, things got personal. The article also gave the sisters the opportunity to voice some of the frustrations that had laid dormant for years. Popo claimed that she had almost gotten plastic surgery to match her sisters until her husband forbade it. And she said that Effie's willingness to go through with the nip and tuck revealed some deep-seated character flaws. According to Popo, Epi was insanely jealous of everything that she had and only moved to Chicago because her husband wasn't as successful as Popo's. She's just like a kid who beats a dog until somebody looks and then she starts petting it, Popo told Life. Meanwhile, Epi argued that Popo was the one who was really obsessed with money. How long am I going to have her hanging over me, Epi remarked. What followed must have felt somewhat shocking to both of them, despite it being a willing choice on both of their parts. Shortly after the article was published, they cut off all communication between each other. These two women, who grew up with their literal other half for company, at the most important moments of their lives, were suddenly alone. alone. This silence would last for years, though it's not exactly clear how long. One source says it was five years, another says eight, and still another says ten. In that time, their lives would continue to mirror each other. Both Ann Landers and Dear Abby would become hugely influential voices for progressive issues. Epi had already made a stand in her first year as Ann Landers by threatening to take her column elsewhere when a paper in St. Joseph, Michigan, tried to avoid printing a letter that talked about homosexuality. Epi said that it was her duty to help the person, even though it would take her years to become more accepting of queer people. Both she and Popo supported birth control, as well as gun control, and they would openly oppose the Vietnam War. Popo was even pro-choice well before Roe vs. Wade, and Epi condemned the death penalty. On top of it all, they would only continue to grow in popularity, fueled in no small part by the contentious nature of their personal relationship. 
But as the article that ignited the feud pointed out, quote, each woman obviously considers her sister the most important human in the world. It's funny that you can take two views on the rivalry and the fallout and the feud and the fact they didn't speak to each other for decades and their kids don't speak to each other now. And you can say like, how dare, well, how, where did they get off giving other people advice about how to manage their relationships? You know, not just romantic, but also familial when they can't even work this out, right? All of us in our lives have problems that we can't work out. And in a kind of this weird way, like you can look at the fact that they didn't speak and they had a really high conflict screwed up relationship and think, where do they get off giving advice? And you can also look at that and say, that makes their advice paradoxically more relatable because they're not God. They're not perfect. And they they understand that, you know, the readers aren't perfect either. And sometimes there's, I call them the unsolvable problems. Sometimes there's a problems that nothing can be done. And you have to be conscious of those too. And I think Anne and Abby were conscious of the unsolvable problem because they were living one. Yeah, let's say that Anne writes you for advice. I have this rivalry with my sister. It's not working out. We're not speaking. What do you tell her? You don't have to speak to your sister. You might like to speak to your sister. You might want to work on that relationship at some point, but you don't have to work on it right now. And, you know, I always quote uh, Armistead Maupin that there's your biological family and then there's your logical family. And it's wonderful when there's a lot of overlap, when that Venn diagram is a circle, that's ideal, but it's not always. And maybe your sister isn't part of your logical family, at least right now. And if having her in your life is too stressful or creates too much conflict or there's a problem you can't solve there, don't feel obligated to solve it. And maybe it'll work itself out over time and, get, you know, take as much time apart as you need. And the rivalry was in some ways good for both of them. It made their columns and the, the two of them more interesting to the reading public. So they both kind of benefited from this shit show. And it, but only in time, I think, could they acknowledge that. Nobody gives good advice like someone who's really lived a meaty life full of ups and downs and conflicts and big issues and things like that. Like, you don't want advice from someone who is, oh, my relationships are all very smooth. Advice is easy to give, too, and hard sometimes to take. And knowing that Ann Landers might not even take Ann Landers' advice when it came to this conflict between two sisters kind of gave you permission to take or leave her advice. There doesn't seem to have been a single moment that brought the two sisters back into harmonious synchronicity. But some point to their joint 25th wedding anniversary in 1964 as the moment of public reconciliation. In a 1993 interview with the New York Times, Epi admitted that she had resented her sister for following her into the advice game. And so she says that she decided they would have to make up. She told the Times, We were always together on our wedding anniversary and birthday. I said, we can't go on the rest of our lives like that. So the two were one again. Privately, they spoke on the phone or faxed each other every day. And in public, their personas continued to grow. Over the next three decades, they would reach an audience of hundreds of millions all over the world. Estimates put their combined weekly intake of letters around 15,000, with their columns syndicated in over 1,200 newspapers. In 1978, a World Almanac survey ranked Epi as the most influential woman in the United States after she convinced Richard Nixon to sign a bill into law allocating $100 million to cancer research. The Midwestern Jewish twins were even granted an audience with Pope John Paul II once. Epi did get into some hot water, though, for calling him a, quote, 
Pollock and his fellow Poles, quote, very anti-women. While the more venomous episodes in their saga were well behind them, they never did stop taking shots at one another. Some were on the more whimsical side. In 1976, Popo joked to People magazine that she had disguised herself as her sister to avoid being recognized when she went to an X-rated movie. Other times, the jabs were a bit more barbed, like when Epi claimed in a 1979 TV interview that she had never once read a Dear Abby column. Still, the love between them never left, as Popo stated in 1981 that she would fight like a tiger for Epi and, quote, she'd do the same for me. Epi Letterer passed away from multiple myeloma, a form of blood cancer, in 2002. Before she died, Epi said that she did not want anyone to take up the mantle of Ann Landers, so there would be no contest to replace her. That name is worth at least a million dollars. I've been offered that. But it's important to me that the name be connected to me and nobody else, she said in 1998. As an interesting aside, Dan Savage purchased her writing desk just a few months after her passing, calling it his quote-unquote prized possession. There's like a dozen advice columns in the New York Times now. There weren't any 30 years ago when I started writing Savage Love. I really think the path that they blazed led to the current kind of explosion uh, of this as a legitimate literary genre. You know, Cheryl Strayed and Roxanne Gay and all of these like amazing kind of Bigfoot big name writers who write advice columns and it's not considered down market or cheesy anymore. When they were doing it was considered a little like de classe. Anne was a little bit more sort of Midwestern kicky aunt. Uh, Abby was a little bit more sly, sardonic, urban, but still they were both kind of considered, you know, not ridiculous, just not serious. And now it's considered serious. And in a way, I think it was the combo of their columns, their presence, their lingering cultural impact, even after they both passed away. And then the cross-pollinization of that with blogs and blogging and the kind of conversations that bloggers had, that journalists began to have with their audiences that reminded people of the conversations Anne and Abby had with their audiences. And in a way, then it kind of opened the door to people like Roxane Gay writing an advice column for the New York Times. According to Popo's daughter, Jean Phillips, Popo, who was about to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, did not take the news of her sister's death well and immediately went to bed. Jean and Popo had been sharing writing duties for Dear Abby since 1987. And shortly after Epi's death, Popo retired completely. In 2013, she died at age 94. But in an interesting quirk of fate, the rivalry did not end there. You see, there may not have been another Ann Landers, but that didn't stop Eppie's daughter Margot Howard from following in her mother's footsteps. In the late 1990s, Margot began writing her own advice column for Slate magazine under the name Dear Prudence. However, it wasn't necessarily a competition for readers that dug fresh trenches for this new generation of advice dealers. Quickly after Eppie's death, Popo's daughter Jean made an appearance on CNN's Larry King Live to mourn her famous aunt. And perhaps conspicuously timed, Dear Abby distributor, the Universal Press Syndicate, announced it would provide a farewell letter to Epi, written by Jean, to all Ann Landers' newspaper clients and other outlets, with permission to print it free of charge. Whether or not this was truly an attempt at sincere emotional closure, Margot Howard was not amused. 
My mother has not been gone a full week yet, and I am highly offended by Jean Phillips. Not at all subtle move to make hay of my mother's death, Howard told the Chicago Tribune. Though I was not asked, I, as her daughter, would not go on Larry King. She's had no relationship with my mother in decades. This is not about grief. This is about new clients. Margot Howard and Jean Phillips are no Epi and Popo Friedman, though. Sure, they may be just as capable of falling into the occasional controversy as their mothers. The original Abby and Anne both falsely propagated the urban myth of razor blades and Halloween candy. And Jean once advised parents to avoid giving their children names that were too foreign-sounding. But the daughters will likely never have the same market share of advice seekers as many other competitors have stepped up to fill the voids left by their mothers. Also, Despite the acrimony, there was a level of intimacy and unity of purpose between Epi and Popo that made their connection so unshakable. And unlike their daughters, their need to trump each other always came from a place of wanting both halves of the egg to succeed. They took these very private, what would be very, very private conversations, and they put them in the most public of possible venues. I just find that absolutely fascinating and, and that they were able to have these conversations uh, that everyday Americans weren't able to have around the dinner table. And they made these conversations normal in some way. They made it okay to talk about these things. I mean, in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was a, con- it was a much more conservative culture uh, than we think of today uh, in terms of family life, in terms of uh, topics revolving around sex and that sort of stuff. And you, you just didn't talk about sex in the way that Ann Landers and Abby did. They talked about sex. And where else in the public culture could you do that in the 1950s or the 1960s? 60s in a respectable way, right? I mean, outside of sort of blue movies or or pornographic magazines or things like this, where else were conversations happening about sex, right? Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode was written by Pete Musto with help from James Levine and Ben Austin Docampo. It was also edited by Pete Musto. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Hi, so if you love Feed the Cue, I know you're going to love this other brand new show I'm obsessed with. It's called Trailer Park, the podcast, Trailer Podcast, and it's dedicated to the art of the audio teaser. Hosts Tim and Ariel want to help listeners find new favorite shows. They want to help creators learn about making an effective trailer, and they want to help the podcast community thrive. Each episode features one trailer, a discussion on that audio, some extra audio tidbits, and more. They're also giving away a vocester from Focusrite on every single episode of season one. So learn how to win by turning to the show now. That's Trailer Park, the podcast trailer podcast. And thanks for listening to Feed the Q. We hope you liked what you just heard. Let us know if you did or didn't. And send us your own podcast recommendations to Feed the Q. That's Q-U-E-U-E at gmail.com. You can also call Tink's podcast recommendation hotline, which is 1-844-POD-AT-ME. And that's 1-844-763-2863. 
You'll hear a new podcast recommendation every day, and you can leave your own podcast recommendation at the beep. But don't worry, nobody will ever answer the call. We'll listen to your recommendations and consider them for future episodes of Feed the Q. And you can find me at tinkmedia.co or on Twitter at Lauren Passell. And you can find me and more about Podcast Brunch Club at podcastbrunchclub.com or at Podcast Brunch on all of the socials. And look for information about the show you just heard and ways to get in touch with us in the show notes. And that's a wrap. See you when we see you. 